Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, the stock market closed out this holiday shortened week uh, on an up note in general. Most of the indexes uh, seem to be up. Uh, S&P 500 up on the day. NASDAQ was the biggest winner. We really had a late day rally uh, after, I guess, uh, President Trump. uh, He had his uh, delayed news conference on China and I guess he didn't say anything that scared anybody. I think the markets were a little worried uh, that he might have said something that could have been interpreted as negative. And so uh, the markets really sold off when he started to speak, uh, but rallied as soon as he finished. He didn't uh, really say much and didn't take any questions. I will get into that a little later in the podcast. But uh, the markets were positive again on the week and on the month. We just finished uh, the month of May. And as I said on the last podcast, the old adage, sell in May and go away, uh, potentially could be very applicable this year. I think the market has had a hope-inspired, Fed-induced rally that I do think will fade. Uh, But, you know, you shouldn't sell everything in May, silver in particular. Uh, Silver, I think, had its biggest monthly gain in nine years up uh, almost 20%. In fact, we were almost up another 50 cents today in the price of silver. And gold was only up maybe 3%, maybe not quite on the month. So not only was this uh, a huge gain for the price of gold, but it was a huge gain for the price of silver in terms of gold. So not just a big move up in silver, but a big move up in silver priced in gold. And, you know, that's something that I have been talking about and forecasting would begin on this podcast. That's why I pretty much have been pounding the table for people to buy silver, because not only is silver going to rise, in my opinion, but it's also going to rise relative to the price of gold, which is also going to rise. And, you know, I've even read some uh, uh, writings uh, that we're People have thought that silver going up and gaining on gold is somehow 
bearish for gold, right? That this shows that, you know, there's been a glut of gold or there's been too much gold buying because the price of gold is falling in terms of silver. Uh, now, I don't think that could be further from the truth. I think it is bullish that silver is finally participating in the precious metals rally. I think I thought rather it was bearish for gold that silver was not participating. Not that it meant that gold couldn't go up, but that it meant that gold wasn't going up even faster. And I think that now that silver has kind of broken out of this downtrend and now silver is not only following gold higher, but potentially leading gold higher, I think that is bullish for gold. In fact, as more commodities begin to move higher, that is bullish for gold because then it keeps gold's value relative to other commodities in check because gold has a historic price in relation to other commodities. And the further it veers from that price to the upside, uh, the more you can argue gold is overvalued. But if we just have a general commodity boom where all commodity prices are rising, then that keeps gold's uh, increase in check. And I think that's what we're headed for because we're going to see a decline in fiat currencies, the U.S. dollar in particular, uh, but all fiat currencies in general. And, you know, one way to know that is to have listened to the interview uh, that Jerome Powell did this afternoon or late this morning, I think, with Alan Blinder. And um, I'm not even really sure how the interview came about. I just happened to be listening to it. And um, the highlights or the lowlights, rather, I'm going to discuss right now. One of them, a blinder asked uh, Powell a question about, is there a limit to, you know, how big the balance sheet could get? You know, are you worried that maybe it's going to grow too much? You know, and... And Powell's basic answer was no, that he's not concerned uh, and the balance sheet has a long way to go. Maybe it's not infinite because obviously the balance sheet can only grow to the extent that there's stuff that the Fed could buy. So I suppose if they ran out of stuff to buy, then that's the only limit that Powell can see to the size of the Fed's balance sheet, meaning the Fed buys everything and then there's nothing left to buy. Uh, but if Powell really believes that there is no limit beyond which the balance sheet can rise. That is a very scary thought about the fact that there's no limit to the depths to which the dollar can plunge and, and lose purchasing power. In fact, uh, um, Powell was specifically asked about, you know, inflation. Is inflation a concern? And of course, that's all Powell is doing is inflating. He is inflating the money supply. That is the definition of inflation. Expand the money supply. That is what Powell is doing. And Powell said, no, he's not concerned. He said that right now we have falling prices. Consumer prices are going down. And that is the problem that the Fed has been dealing with uh, for years, if not decades. And so the furthest thing from Powell's mind is a problem with consumer prices going up. So he's not worried at all that inflation may cause consumer prices to go up. He thinks he can keep on inflating uh, and there's nothing to worry about because prices aren't going to rise. And that is just absurd. I mean, they're already rising. There are plenty of prices 
that are going up. I get a lot of emails from people with anecdotal evidence of all sorts of products that are now much more expensive than they were uh, pre-COVID. Now, sure, you know, there are some prices that have gone down, but they're not going to stay down. I mean, the initial reaction when you have a collapse of demand is for prices to come down. I mean, that's what's going to happen. But as inventories are depleted, as capacity is reduced, uh, that glut of merchandise is going to disappear and prices are going to be going up. But that's when the effect of all the new money is going to be hitting consumer prices. That lag, you're going to see all this money arriving just as all the goods have diminished the supply of goods to buy. So the fact that Powell is not at all worried about inflation, despite the fact that he's creating so much of it, uh, that's why you should be buying gold and silver. In fact, probably the most ridiculous thing that Powell said, right? and I'm not making any of this stuff up. You might think that's no way he could have possibly said this, but yeah, this, this is what the guy said. Um, he actually said that the Federal Reserve had crossed a lot of red lines, right? Red lines that had never been crossed before, the Fed has now crossed them. And Powell is not concerned. He's not worried about the consequences, adverse consequences of having crossed lines that no other Fed chairman, you know, had the nerve to cross because what he told Blinder was that this is the situation that you just have to do it and then you have to figure it out afterwards, right? So just act blindly, hope for the best, and then see what happens, right? I mean, forget about the hypocritic oath, right, that doctors take to do no harm. Just do it and we'll, we'll see what happens afterwards, right? So I immediately thought of Nancy Pelosi, right? Those were her famous words. We got to pass the bill to see what's in it, right? We can't read the bill first see what's in it, and then decide if we like it and vote on it. No, 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 that takes too long. We just got to pass it, and then we'll find out after the fact what we voted for, right? Just pass the bill, and then we'll see what's in it. Well, that's basically what Powell is doing with monetary policy, right? It's just, we'll just print the money, and then we'll see where it goes, right? Who cares? Because things are just so bad that we might as well just do this because we're going to completely collapse, right? It's like somebody maybe who's got a terminal disease, just I'll take anything. I don't care. Even if this stuff is going to kill me, I'm going to die anyway. So what's the big deal? That's basically what Powell is saying, that things are so bad that it doesn't even matter if the cure kills us because we're going to die anyway. And, you know, Powell was specifically asked about negative interest rates, right, and why we're not going there. Because after all, Europe has it or tried it. Japan tried it. Why don't we do it, right? And, and Powell uh, went back to what the Fed had said in the past, that they're not planning on negative interest rates, right? Doesn't matter what they're planning on. What matters is what they're going to do. I think if the market demands it, then the Fed will supply it. But Powell said, well, you know, we really don't want to go there because there's no actual proof that it works, right? Even though it's been tried in other countries, there's no proof that it works. Well, there's no proof that zero works either, and we're at zero. I mean, why does the Fed demand proof that something works in order to do it? In fact, Powell just said we're going to do it and figure out if it works after the fact. So I don't believe uh, Powell when he says he's not going to do something just because there's no proof that it works. 
I mean, the, the reason that central banks do this is not because it works. It's because they're desperate and they know if they don't do it, there's going to be a crisis. So they do it, even if it means there's a bigger crisis later on. But, you know, Powell did mention some of the reasons that we shouldn't have negative rates, uh, but it does, it's not going to stop the Fed. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that one of the points that Powell made when he was explaining this, because um, Blinder asked him, you know, you, you know, when you get to zero, you know, does that mean that you're kind of out of ammunition? And, and um, Powell's like, no, no, no. I mean, you know, we got plenty more ammunition. It doesn't mean that when you reach zero that you still can't keep cutting. There are other things that we could do to ease monetary policy. And one of the things that Powell mentioned that the Fed did before was once they got to zero, in order to lower rates without going negative, they committed to staying at zero for a long period of time. It was that forward guidance that effectively amounted to a cut Right. So it's not like we're at zero. Now we're at zero and we're going to stay here indefinitely. So don't worry that we may one day raise rates. We're not doing that anytime soon. So that was, in effect, a rate cut, even though the Fed was at zero. But of course, the one thing, right, the one question that should be asked after you've gotten rates down to zero and you're still in trouble, wouldn't it even occur to a central banker to now question the very efficacy of their rate cutting policy. Because if you've got down to zero and you still need more stimulus, maybe what you're doing ain't working. Maybe the fact that you had to bring rates down to zero and you still have a problem means that cutting rates is not the solution to that problem. In fact, maybe it's the rate cuts that are perpetuating the problem. Maybe we wouldn't have a problem, but for rates going down. In fact, had the Fed let rates go up, that would have actually solved the problem. Maybe it would have been a painful cure, but it would have worked. But just giving a drug addict more drugs in ever-increasing doses, which is all uh, the Fed is doing, that's never going to work. But no, Powell nor any other central banker is ever going to admit that they were wrong they're never going to reassess the efficacy of a failed policy. All they can think of is up the dosage and hope it works better, right? It's just the definition of insanity, except instead of repeating the same mistake over and over again and expecting a different result, you repeat the same mistakes on a bigger scale and then you expect uh, a different result. Now, we got a lot of economic data points uh, that came out today and yesterday. But in particular, a couple that came out that I really want to talk about are the consumer uh, income and spending numbers and the, um, the trade data, because they, they, really, they really go uh, hand in hand. So we got the personal income and spending numbers for April. And it was a very interesting series of numbers because personal income surged by the most ever, right? 10.5% was the gain. Actually, the consensus estimate was for a drop. This is probably the biggest miss ever too, right? You're looking for personal income to decline by 6%, which would be a huge decline. And instead, it went up by 10.5%. So a big miss and a big increase. And you know, last month, consumer spending was down by 2%, which was a big drop under normal circumstances, but we were up 10.5%. But now look at consumer spending. 
which was down 7.5% in March. It was supposed to drop by 12.6% in April. At least that was the estimate. And we actually declined by 13.6%, which I think was the biggest monthly decline in consumer spending ever. So we had the biggest increase in personal income ever, while at the same time, we had the biggest decrease in in personal spending. And so obviously, uh, what that means is a lot of the extra income that consumers had, they did not spend, right? And one of the reasons they didn't spend it is because they weren't leaving home. So the only place they could spend it really was online. Uh, and so clearly that was one reason that you had the drop in, uh, in, in spending. But I think another reason is exactly what I discussed on this podcast before. And that is you got a bunch of unemployed people or people who may or may not be permanently unemployed. They have no idea. In fact, I read this article where I think 50% of the small businesses that shut down don't plan on ever reopening. Uh, so a lot of people uh, have a lot of uncertainty about their future employment situation. Meanwhile, they already have a lot of debt, right? We have tremendous credit card debt. We have tremendous auto loans, student loans, mortgage debt. So you have a bunch of unemployed people or people who are not even sure if they're going to have a job, but they do have a lot of debt. Why should they keep spending? I mean, they should finally start to save. In fact, the savings rate has shot way up uh, recently. And maybe part of that, too, is that people aren't even paying their rent. Maybe they're just saving the money that they otherwise would have used to pay their rent uh, because they know they can't get evicted. But a lot of this, uh, I think, is significant going forward if consumers have finally exhausted uh, their ability and willingness to continue to go into debt in order to spend money. And so maybe what they're doing uh, is they're paying back some of their existing debt or just trying to replenish a you know pretty much very, very shallow savings pool because COVID-19 was a big wake-up call for the people living paycheck to paycheck. Hey, you guys have got to you know, get your house in order. Meanwhile, where did all this income come from? Because we had massive layoffs, right? In fact, we got the, uh, uh, the weekly unemployment claims that came out again yesterday. Another 2.123 million people lost their jobs in the most recent week, right? So people keep losing their jobs, which means they're losing their paychecks, right? They're not, you know, they're not getting a paycheck and not having a job. So... How is it that uh, employment has plunged while personal income has soared? Well, the reason for that is the stimulus money. Everybody got a one-time check, right? That was a boost, whether you were employed or unemployed. Uh, You got a check. So everybody got those stimulus checks. That counted as personal income. Plus, a lot of people who are now unemployed, and I've gone over this, unemployed people all across the country are making more in unemployment benefits than they were when they were working and getting salaries. So that is also helping to boost personal income, right? But personal income is not rising for the right reasons. Income is not up because we have more people working and earning more money because if more people were working and earning more money, right, they would be producing more stuff. They would be supplying more services. And the money they earned would be in payment for the goods they helped produce 
or the services they help provide. So they would be enriching society by adding value to society, and then their wages would enable them to claim some of the increased productivity that they help bring about. But that's not what's happening. People are collecting more money doing nothing, more money not contributing than when they were contributing. So all of this new money simply is going to push up the price of goods and services. Either it's going to prevent prices from falling, or maybe they'll fall less than they otherwise would have, or it's going to make prices go up. And in fact, what was a very interesting uh, number that also came out today that is particularly interesting when you contrast it to the personal income and spending number was the trade deficit in goods, otherwise, or used to be known as merchandise trade deficit for the same month for April. And that was supposed to come in at 64.7 billion, which would have been a slight uh, increase from the 64.2 billion that we had in the prior month, which by the way, was in, uh, revised up to 65 billion. But we were look, they were looking for a small increase Instead, we got a 7% surge all the way up to 69.7 billion, right? There was a drop in exports of 25.2%, right? Obviously, that's a huge decline in exports, right? Fewer people are going to work, so they're not producing the products that we can export. We also had a decline in imports, but not nearly as great. Imports only went down by 14.3%. So the bottom line is, even though consumer spending collapsed by 13%, spending on imports rose. We imported 7% more stuff even as we spent 13% less. So that means that the money that the Fed is printing is being used to buy the goods that other people are producing. So we're exporting our inflation uh, and we're getting, we're importing goods. But what this is going to do is put more downward pressure on the dollar until the dollar ultimately cracks. In fact, the dollar index uh, had a very weak week today. In fact, it, it actually traded below the 98 handle uh, intraday. It got to 97.94 uh, before, you know, recovering 98 before the close. I think we ended up settling at 98.26. Uh, but this is still uh, it, the weakest it's been, I think, since uh, mid-March or early March. Uh, but we could be breaking down in the dollar. It's about time. And once it breaks down, there is a long way to drop. And these rising trade deficits certainly suggest that that's what's going to happen uh, to the dollar. In fact, these numbers you know, really tie in to this absurd uh, idea uh, that was floated by Mark Cuban. Uh, this is one of the sharks in Shark Tank. Dallas Mavericks owner, uh, billionaire Mark Cuban, has been getting a lot of press uh, for his idea for an economic stimulus card, right? Because uh, Mark Cuban is upset that a lot of the stimulus money is not getting spent, right? I guess he's got a lot of these Shark Tank companies uh, that need revenue, and he's worried that consumers are getting this government money and perish the thought they're saving it or they're paying down debt. And so uh, Cuban's idea is that the government give everybody a debit card and then it load it up with cash and have an expiration date. So that here's your debit card, you get to go out and buy stuff, 
But if there's any money left on the card after a week or 10 days, then it's gone. So you have a set amount of time in which to spend this money. And if you don't spend it, you lose it, right? Use it or lose it. And according to Cuban, that's a way to really help the economy because now people will go out and spend the money. And that's what we need is we need more spending. And of course, this is an asinine um, uh, recommendation that's actually getting a lot of press. And I know it's asinine because I actually suggested it myself back in 2008 as a joke. And I, I tweeted out the link to that commentary. You, you, you can actually find it uh, if you just Google uh, a modest proposal, uh, Peter Schiff. And that is an article that I wrote in, in 2008. And of course, you know, I got the title off of Jonathan Swift's uh, allegorical essay, uh, a satirical essay, rather, that he wrote, a, more of a satire. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, that particular satire, you can read it, you know, read the, the Swift uh, article or read about it. And you'll understand why I, I use that uh, for, for the title. Uh, but uh, Cuba's a successful guy. He's a smart guy. He's an entrepreneur. You know, if somebody as smart as Mark Cuban can believe something as dumb as these economic stimulus cards, but that's exactly what I wrote. I mean, word for word. I mean, I'm not uh, basically accusing Cuban of Jeffrey gunlocking me. I mean, I don't think he's, he's just copying me. I think he legitimately just came up with this idea. I doubt he remembers what I wrote or even read what I wrote in 2008. But the difference is I was joking. Cuban is serious. He actually thinks that this is going to work. And the point is, if a smart guy can believe something this dumb is going to work, what about the rest of the Americans? What about the average voter who is going to believe this nonsense? We don't need more spending, right? We're in trouble because consumers spent too much in the past. We don't have enough savings. When consumers try to replenish their savings, that's not something that we should resist. Look, Cuban thinks that the way we get people to buy stuff is to give them money. Look, if businesses are having trouble selling their merchandise, they can cut their prices, right? And they'll sell more. And that's what some businesses are doing. Putting more money into the economy doesn't make the economy richer. It's just more money. The money, if you give people money to spend, that doesn't create stuff for them to buy. All the addition of new money means is the stuff that's there is going to be more expensive. Either the prices that would have gone down won't go down as much, or prices that might have remained the same will go up, or prices that were going to go up are going to go up even more. All this is is destroying the money. So you have the private sector, you've got entrepreneurs wanting money to be printed and sent out, right? You got the politicians that want it. And then you got the central bank. You got the chairman of the Federal Reserve saying, we're going to, you know, let's print more money. There's no downside. We don't have to worry about rising prices, right? All we're concerned about is that prices aren't rising enough. And so everybody is beating the drums for inflation. Everybody wants more inflation because they actually think that this is the holy grail of economic growth, that they've somehow stumbled upon the equivalent of the fountain of youth when it comes to economics, right? This is a shortcut, right? Gee, why didn't other countries think of this? All we have to do is print money, right? Whenever we're in trouble, just print money and everything is going to be great because, hey, people can spend that newly printed money and the economy is going to boom. It's not going to boom. Prices boom. You have inflation, 
What we need is more economic growth, not more consumption. We need more production. We need to, we need to build the economy. In fact, one of the things that Donald Trump said in his talk today, in his brief talk, was that America has to be more self-reliant, that we have to rebuild our manufacturing, rebuild our supply chain. We can't be as dependent on other nations. I 100% agree. We can't depend on other nations for manufactured goods. We can't depend on other nations for savings. We need to save our own money. We need to produce our own stuff, right? But we can't do all that if all we're doing is printing money and spending it. Everything the Fed is doing, everything Mark Cuban wants the Fed to do, and everything really that Trump and Congress wants the Fed to do is at odds with what Donald Trump claims he wants for our nation. But also what Donald Trump doesn't mention is that if we're actually going to do that, if we're actually going to rebuild this viable, self-reliant, independent economy that is not beholden to anybody else, that there's a lot of sacrifices that need to be made in order to accomplish that goal. And it can't be accomplished with government bailouts and government stimulus. And it doesn't matter that COVID-19 was nobody's fault. Sometimes bad things happen and you suck it up and you deal with it. You don't get money from the government. Now, people say, oh, Peter, you're heartless. You know, you just want people to starve. I don't want anybody to starve. And I think if we had a free market capitalism, nobody would starve, right? It's the free market that feeds people. Government is the reason that people starve. Nothing that government is doing right now is going to alleviate any pain. What the government is doing is exacerbating the pain. Maybe it's delaying the pain a bit. And one of the reasons it's doing that is because the dollar hasn't collapsed yet because we are able to use the money we print to buy all the stuff everybody else makes. But there is a limit to how much longer we can get away with that. We're about to find out the hard way what that limit is. We, we're going to find out that we crossed that line because we're on the other side of it and we're going to have to experience the consequences. You know, Goldman Sachs had this uh, call on Wednesday. It was a, a client call and I meant to listen to it. I actually went and registered for it, and then I totally forgot I was doing something else. So I didn't, I didn't listen to it. But what I did do is uh, read about it. And, and one of the things that they were going to talk about was Bitcoin, right? Because the, the title was going to be inflation and you know gold and Bitcoin and what to do. And of course, the Bitcoin community got real excited on Wednesday about the prospects of Goldman Sachs talking to their clients about Bitcoin, because of course, in their mind, ha ha, this is it. Goldman Sachs is going to recommend Bitcoin. It's going to the moon, right? First, John, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, and now Goldman Sachs, it's going to open up this whole big institutional adoption, and this is going to mainstream us, and we finally got it, right? So everybody's getting excited. And in my mind, it's like, there's no way that Goldman Sachs is going to come out and recommend Bitcoin. Just no way that they're going to do it. And sure enough, they, they, they didn't. They basically threw a bunch of cold water on Bitcoin and they said a lot of good things about why Bitcoin is bad. You know? And, you know, of course, they didn't say all the things. There were a lot of points that they could have made that they didn't. Right. But they made enough points uh, that were valid. And, and basically they said, look, Bitcoin is not an asset class and it's not an inflation hedge. It's nothing. So there's no reason to buy it. There's no reason to recommend it. I mean, they said it is volatile. 
And, you know, you could trade it if you're looking for a volatile asset to trade. And they certainly claim that, that Bitcoin has volatility. And so that could have some appeal to traders, but it had no appeal to Goldman Sachs for the purpose of recommending it to clients. Because if it's not an asset that throws off income or the potential for throwing off income like a stock or a bond, and I know you could say, hey, there are plenty of stocks that don't pay dividends. Right, they don't, but they have earnings. And then they can use those earnings to rebuy stock, right? And that's another way of returning uh, their income to the shareholders. But yeah, there are some companies that don't have earnings either, uh, but people are gambling that they will have earnings in the future. That's the bet. When you buy a startup that doesn't have any earnings, in theory, you're betting that the earnings will show up in the future and that the, the, the losses that we're experiencing now are the price that we pay for profits in the future. I mean, if you think that there's never going to be a profit, well, then there's no reason to buy the stock and it should go to zero. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Now, a lot of these stocks would go to the zero, but for the Fed and the false you know, hope that the Fed engenders. But at least there is the, 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 the possibility of future earnings. But with Bitcoin, there is no potential for any earnings at any point, right? You, Bitcoin doesn't throw off any earnings. I mean, could you loan your Bitcoin out to somebody and they could pay you interest? Sure. But the Bitcoin itself doesn't generate any income the way a stock would or the way a piece of rental property would or the way uh, you know a bond would. But they also said it's not, there's no proof that it's an inflation hedge because it's not an actual commodity that has any real world applications. It doesn't have any actual value in the present. Therefore, it can't be a store of value for the future because you can't store what you don't have. So if it's not an asset in the sense that it generates an income, and if it's not something that will preserve value and act as a fl- inflation hedge, then what the hell is it? Basically, they said, all it is is you're buying it uh, on the greater fool theory. You're buying it because you're hoping you can sell it to somebody else at a higher price. And they're not going to recommend uh, 
an asset on that basis to their clients. And, you know, I, I, I agree. That's why I would never recommend it to any of my clients. And uh, but not only did Goldman Sachs say don't buy Bitcoin, they also said don't buy gold. And I think that maybe is one of the reasons that the Bitcoin bugs were kind of emboldened because, hey, they, they don't like anything, right? They don't like gold. They don't like Bitcoin. And so, you know, Bitcoin is just like gold. But their criticism of Bitcoin was much different than their criticism of gold. The reason that Goldman Sachs doesn't like Bitcoin is they don't think it's legitimate. The reason that Goldman Sachs is not recommending gold is because they don't think people need to buy it because they think everything is great. See, if you look at the other points that Goldman made, with which I disagree uh, strongly, their perspective was that the economy was in great shape, that the worst was over, that the Fed had did a great job, and there's nothing to worry about. There's not going to be any inflation. And so because we have a bull market in stocks, because we're about to have a V-shaped recovery, because everything is great, because the, the Fed is a bunch of geniuses who did everything right, and we have nothing to worry about, and there's no inflation anywhere in sight, there is no reason to own gold. And if you accept Goldman Sachs' premise, then that would be true. If I was foolish enough to believe all the assertions that were made by Goldman Sachs, I wouldn't be buying gold either. But if, on the other hand, Goldman Sachs came to a different conclusion, if they thought the dollar was in jeopardy, that it wasn't sound, that it was going to fall, that inflation was a risk, that the economy was not in good shape, that we were headed for stagflation, if Goldman Sachs believed what I believe, then they would be recommending gold just like I am. They wouldn't be recommending Bitcoin for the same reasons I'm not, but they would be recommending gold. And I think they will. I mean, I think one of these days Goldman Sachs is going to change their tune if they haven't already changed it privately. I mean, Goldman Sachs has a history of doing one thing publicly and doing the opposite privately with their own money, right, versus what they recommend that their clients do with their money. See, I do the same thing. I eat my own cooking, right? That fact, that's all I eat. Uh, is my own cooking, and I'm and I and I'm the biggest eater of my cooking, right? Uh, but Goldman Sachs a lot of times does the opposite. So maybe one of the reasons that they're talking down gold is because they want to buy more for themselves. Maybe they're talking down gold stocks because that's what they want to buy. Now I know you can say, oh, they're doing the same thing with Bitcoin. No, they're not. They don't want to buy Bitcoin. They couldn't care less about Bitcoin. Uh, but I do know that they're smart enough to realize that if there's a bunch of inflation then gold is what you want to own or silver or, or, or gold stocks, and, and they would do it. Now, the cynic in me, right, would say that one of the other reasons that Goldman Sachs is so positive on the dollar, right, and the U.S. economy and so negative on gold is they are a primary dealer of U.S. treasuries. And also, you know, the U.S. government right now is giving out a lot of money. Right. I mean, because they're they're buying up assets today. Uh, they went over a bunch of these corporate bond ETFs uh, that the Fed has been buying and they just started. I mean, uh, Powell said, look, we've just started to buy. We've mostly been talking. Right. They talked the market up and now they're going to buy at the prices that they that, that they propped up, which is the dumb way to do it. They should have bought before the prices went up, not after. But they let their buddies on Wall Street load up uh, on what they're going to be buying so their buddies can dump it. But there's also a lot of money that the U.S. government is paying to companies like Goldman Sachs to manage these portfolios. So do you think Goldman Sachs wants to be critical 
of the U.S. government? No, because they're not going to get a contract. Right? The, the government is not going to choose to do business with a firm that is trashing uh, government policy or Fed policy, right? You think my company would ever get a contract with the U.S. government? You think uh, the Federal Reserve is going to come to me at Europe Pacific Capital and say, hey, Peter, we'd like you to manage uh, some of this uh, money that were, that were uh, assets that we're buying. That's not a chance. Why would they want to do business with me? I'm their biggest critic, right? Well, you think Goldman Sachs wants to be in the penalty box? You think they want to risk missing out on their share of that gravy train? So they're never going to say a negative word about the U.S. government, about the Federal Reserve, because they want to do business. They want to get their, their piece of the action. But also, as a primary dealer right, of U.S. Treasuries, they got a lot of U.S. Treasuries they got to sell. Well, when you're selling Treasuries, you're selling dollars. How are you going to trash the dollar when you're trying to sell it? Goldman Sachs is trying to convince people to load up on dollars via Treasuries. Well, how are they going to say the dollar is going to crash by gold when, they, when, they're, when they're trying to sell you at treasuries? It's like, you know, uh, you go to a, a, a used car lot, right? You know, the guy's got a bunch of used cars to sell. What is he going to tell you? Don't buy this one. It's a clunker. They drove the hell out of it. They stripped all the gears. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was only driven by a grandma who went, who went to, to church every Sunday, and that's the only time it was used. You know, they're going to say what I have to say because they got to move this lemon off their lot. Well, that's basically what Goldman Sachs has got. They got the ultimate in lemons uh, when it comes to U.S. Treasuries. And they got to put a lot of lipstick on that pig because they got to sell it. And so that's really what they're doing. Uh, and so I, I don't doubt uh, that, that they're going to come out publicly and say all is great, nothing to worry about, and there's no reason to buy gold. But we know the truth, right? If anybody who listened to Pal Talk or looked at these numbers uh, that are coming out that Wall Street continues to ignore. I'll give you a few more numbers uh, that came out. We got the Chicago PMI today. Uh, in April, we got 35.4, which was like the lowest it had been since 2009, right? Which was the tail end of the Great Recession. And uh, the estimate was a bounce up to 40. What did we get? It dropped all the way down to 32.3. That is the lowest Chicago PMI since 1982, right? That was in the big recession when Reagan was president and Volcker jacked interest rates up to 20%. And that's what it took to get the, the PMI to 32.3. Where would the PMI be today if interest rates went to 20%? Remember, I talked on the last podcast about what happens if rates go to 10%. We got a PMI at 32.3 and we're at zero. Uh, so we're getting terrible economic numbers. Even consumer sentiment hit a new seven-year low today. Uh, the April number was 73.7 on the Michigan uh, Consumer Sentiment Survey. They were actually looking for a slight improvement to 74. Instead, we went down to 72.3. That was below even the lowest estimate for consumer sentiment. And you know, what surprises me is not that the sentiment went down. I'm surprised it didn't go down even more. I mean, there is so much to be worried about that people aren't worried. I mean, it's going to be so much worse than consumers think. They should be a lot uh, you know, more worried. Yesterday, we got durable goods. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as they were estimating. They were looking for minus 18.2%, and we got minus 17.2%. But that's only because the prior month, 
was revised from down 14.4 to down 16.6. So when you take the revisions into account, that number was also worse than expected and they expected a bad number. And then of course, we know we got the balance sheet numbers yesterday as we always do. Only $60 billion increase. The Fed took a break on the week and only uh, bought $60.1 billion uh, of uh, bonds. And so now the balance sheet is almost $7.1 trillion. The official tally was $7.097 trillion. Money supply also not up quite as much as the $225.2 billion was what we got last week. Uh, so this week, money supply only grew by $93.8 billion. But that is still an enormous increase in the money supply as we are working less, right? We know that employment has collapsed production has collapsed. At the same time, the production of money is going through the roof, right? This is the inflation that the Federal Reserve couldn't care less about, is not worried about, doesn't even think it's an issue. The problem is what happens when the Fed discovers after the fact that it's wrong, right? Just like um, Powell said, right? We're going to figure it out uh, afterwards. Well, what if afterwards they figure out that they let the inflation genie out of the bottle? then what do they do? They can't do anything. They're stuck, right? And this is why we're going to have a complete collapse. This is why we're going to have an implosion. And, you know, Donald Trump is already trying to come up with another scapegoat, and I think it's going to be China, right? I mean, he's already, you know, you know, drumming, banging the war drums against China. That was the, uh, the point of the speech today, blaming China for everything, uh, in particular, uh, COVID-19, I mean, saying that basically China is the reason uh, that the entire world uh, was infected. It's their fault. They let it out. They have to pay. Uh, also, that China has been stealing our, our, our trade secrets and they haven't played fair. And now he's also talking about uh, Hong Kong and maybe imposing some sanctions there because he says that China is not respecting the autonomy of Hong Kong, but really kind of upping the rhetoric. He didn't lay out any specific punishments for China, any new tariffs. He did kind of acknowledge what I talked about on my last podcast, that phase one of the trade deal basically no longer exists, right? So there really is no trade deal. We spent an entire two years, uh, you know, talking about a trade deal, right? The whole reason for tariffs was to bring the Chinese to the table, to negotiate a great trade deal. And all that was for nothing because we got nothing. We got no trade deal. But now China is going to be the scapegoat. I think initially um, Trump was going to run against the Fed. But now that the Fed is all in with QE, infinity, and 0% rates, it's hard for uh, Trump to make Powell the enemy, right? So now he needs a new enemy uh, to try to unite the country, to get the country to rally around that enemy. And it seems like that enemy is going to be China. Uh, but meanwhile, the Democrats are going to make Trump uh, the enemy. And the question is, what's going to be a better uh, campaign strategy, blaming China or blaming Trump? Uh, and of course, when they blame Trump, they'll be able to blame greed. They'll be able to blame capitalism. They'll be able to invoke the memories of the 2008 financial crisis uh, and the Great Recession. And they'll be able to re-blame that on Bush and his association with tax cuts and capitalism and just say, look, you know, uh, Trump inherited uh, a great economy from Obama. And just like everything else he inherits, he squandered it. 
and we need, you know, we need a new deal. We need a new new deal, a green new deal, whatever they're going to call it. Uh, but that's the bill of goods uh, that Biden is going to be selling. And personally, I think the public is going to buy it. Anyway, I want to uh, move over to the questions. Before I do, and these are, you know, the questions that people had been asking in the live chat uh, earlier in the week. But I wanted to remind everybody to buy a copy of The Bubble Movie. If you haven't already bought that movie, uh, this was a movie that was produced really about a decade ago, right? I mean, and it finally came out a couple of years ago. It's a great documentary, very well done film. Uh, and it took a long time to, to put it together. So it finally came out many, many years after it was filmed, right? But there's a lot of good people in there other than me. Uh, what we had in common, other than being Austrians when it comes to economics, was that we were predicting the 2008 financial crisis uh, when nobody else saw it coming. So, but it's a great documentary on how governments have caused bubbles in the past, and in particular, how government policy caused uh, the, um, the 2008 financial crisis and the housing bubble that preceded it. So it puts all the blame on government, on the Federal Reserve, and exonerates the free market. And the reason that everybody needs to watch that now and get a copy and share it with your friends is because the second version is coming out soon. And that is the real crash version. That is the what happens next. That is the consequence of all of the monetary stimulus and bailouts uh, that now we're going to have to suffer, right? The 2008 financial crisis was the payback for the monetary policy mistakes made after the dot-com bubble popped, right? It was keeping it, taking interest rates to 1%, leaving them there, and then slowly normalizing them. That gave us the housing bubble and the financial crisis. We have yet to experience the, the consequences of 0% interest rates and QE1, 2, and 3, let alone the QE4 that we got now that's even bigger. So this new movie is now forecasting what's about to happen. So the documentary that's there now is a look back on what already happened. But the next one is going to be a look forward to what is going to happen. But before that one comes out, make sure that you've already watched this one. And I think it's only 10 bucks. Uh, the Blu-ray, uh, $10. Initially, they were 15 Now it's only $10 a copy. Uh, it's a good deal. Uh, it's great to own a copy. And, you know, share it. Get, get other people. The way you buy it, just go to thebubblefilms.com. Just type in that URL, bubblefilms.com. It's films plural because there's two of them, although only one of them is out now. Uh, and then you just it brings you right to the landing page and you can order uh, a copy. You will be thoroughly entertained. I've seen it a couple of times and I'm entertained. Right. And I know a lot of this stuff and I'm in it. And so if I can watch it multiple times and be entertained every time, imagine how many times, uh, you know, you guys can watch it and, and be equally, if not even more entertained uh, than I was. Anyway, let me start uh, looking at these questions. Uh, first one from Maureen Black, well, Marine Black. Jim Rickard says SDRs from the IMF is going to replace the dollar as a reserve currency, not gold. What do you think? I disagree. You know, I like Jim Rickards, but I don't see 
the world jumping from the monetary frying pan into the monetary fire, right? What are special drawing rights from the IMF? They're just pieces of paper that are backed up by other pieces of paper like the U.S. dollar. I mean, that's what backs the, the, the special drawing rights. It's dollars, it's euros, right? It's pounds, it's yen. Uh, and so if there's a crisis in the dollar and the dollar collapses, and now you say, okay, just take this special drawing right. Well, what the hell is that? I mean, if the dollar could crash, why can't this? I mean, this is even more obscure. I mean, I put my faith in the U.S. dollar, and that turned out to be a mistake. I think I'm going to make an even bigger mistake by putting my faith in a special drawing right of the International Monetary Fund. I mean, come on. There's no way that people are going to make that transition. In fact, that's why I say that you know, after the dollar loses its status as a reserve currency, that status is not going to be bequeathed on some other country. People are not going to just blindly go from one fiat currency to another. Oh, we just got wiped out in the dollar, but hey, we're going to trust the euro. Who the hell would trust the euro, right? Or the yen? I wouldn't trust any of these. In fact, I mentioned on the last podcast, nobody would have trusted the dollar as the reserve currency but for the fact that it was backed by gold and redeemable in gold and issued by the world's biggest creditor nation, right? I mean, that's why people uh, took uh, the dollar. They would never take it today under today's circumstances. So the only thing that makes sense, once the dollar proves to be a failure and you lose faith in that, well, then that's it. You need real money. The only thing that would make sense that could follow the dollar would be a return to gold. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to be gold as the monetary reserve, not some piece of paper created out of thin air uh, by the IMF. In fact, the IMF is probably going to collapse and go away, which is uh, probably a good thing. Uh, next up is uh, Lawrence Wilson. Peter, love your book. Uh, which one? But anyway, probably all of them, which is good. Uh, could this be the tale of two farmers? Second, could negative bond yields end up like negative oil prices where people are being paid to take worthless currency off someone's hands? Well, no, because when it comes to um, negative uh, interest rates, right, it's very different than negative oil prices, which, again, only lasted for a day or not even a complete day. I forget how many hours oil prices were in negative territory. They're now back above $30 a barrel. That was a short term anomaly where you had speculators scrambling to, to get rid of oil that they had no place to store. So that was a market anomaly. Uh, but when you talk about negative interest rates that a central bank is creating, that's simply because the central bank itself is overpaying for short-term bonds to the point where it's losing money because it doesn't care that it loses money uh, because it creates the money out of thin air. So what difference does it make if it loses it? It had no cost to acquire it. I mean, no rational private individual would pay somebody to take their money off their hands. You know, I mean, you, you would, you, you, people prefer to have things now. We have a time preference for present consumption over future consumption. So you have to pay to borrow money. You don't pay to lend money. So this is an anomaly that is being artificially created and maintained by central banks. And the only reason it exists is because of central banks and because central banks are doing this and they are creating these massive economic distortions 
uh, they're causing damage. I mean, I think about the, the Federal Reserve right now. Forget about negative interest rates. The Federal Reserve is buying all these corporate bonds. That means that corporate bonds that would be much lower in price are now artificially bid up. That means companies that really shouldn't be able to borrow money are able to borrow it. See, normally, if you have a free market, companies that are risky and have a bad balance sheet and maybe a bad business model, they can't borrow a lot of money. And for good reason, because they probably can't pay it back, right? The market will push up interest rates. But if the Federal Reserve is buying those bonds to artificially suppress rates, then companies that otherwise would have been denied credit for good reason end up getting credit. And then, of course, when they go bankrupt, even more money is lost because the Fed has enabled them to borrow more money. And also, too, if you're an equity investor, you know, a bond yield from a company is kind of like a warning sign, right? All of a sudden, if you see the bonds of a company falling in price and interest rates rising, that's kind of like a warning sign. Hey, something's wrong, right? The bond market is sniffing out a problem at the company. Maybe I should sell the stock. Maybe I shouldn't be in the stock if people are too worried about holding their debt. After all, the debt is in a senior position to the equity. And if the bondholders are worried about getting paid back, well, then the stockholders better be worried even more. But now the government is short-circuiting those warning signs. Warning signs that would ordinarily be flashing, flashing are being uh, you know, obscured by the government. They've, they've thrown a blanket over those warning signs so you can't see them. The whole market is rigged. But this particular uh, question about the two farmers is referring to uh, farmers in my book. Because in my book, and I think it was uh, Crash Proof, I had an analogy of two farmers that are trading with one another, right? Let's say one farmer uh, grows wheat and maybe the other uh, farmer uh, grows corn or I forget what particular commodities uh, they were growing. Uh, but then the farmers would trade with one another. So the farmer that grows wheat also has corn because he gets to trade some of his wheat uh, for corn. And basically each farmer farms what is most ideal for his land and that's highest and best use and comparative advantage. You do what you do best and then you trade with other people, right? And I think in one of the examples was a farmer didn't have anything and he just paid with IOUs because he didn't have any crops. And the other farmer was accepting the IOUs because he figured that the farmer would eventually uh, be good for his IOUs. And I think in my example, the farmer got so used to not farming and living off his IOUs that he turned his farm into a golf course or something like that. And the other farmer hadn't even noticed that the farmer he was trading with and accepting his IOUs had no possibility of ever making good the IOUs in real food because he, was, he no longer had a farm. He had a golf course. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. American, America's creditors are going to wake up and they're going to realize uh, that we've been paying uh, for imports with IOUs, but we don't have the ability to make good on those IOUs uh, with actual exports. Um, next question, Ferris Twain. Let's see. Since I discovered you, I've been obsessed with Austrian economics. My goal is to teach the subject in academia. Which grad schools would you recommend? I mean, you know, I don't know which grad schools. I mean, I mean, there are some schools uh, that are known for Austrian economics. Uh, George Mason uh, University is one. And there's the uh, Auburn. Um, what's the um, college there? I spoke there. 
Um, but anyway, it slips my mind. But there, there are some schools uh, where they have professors who teach Austrian economics, who you know follow the Austrian economists, and you know who are not Keynesians, who are not monetarists, who you know actually you know are are, are educated and have read uh, the pioneers of that particular school of thought. Uh, but I think the best way to learn it is the way my son Spencer is learning it. Just teach it to yourself. I mean, that's how I learned it. I mean, I didn't. Le- I certainly didn't learn anything uh, worthwhile about economics in school. Right? Whatever I know that really has value, I learned on my own. Either I learned it from my father, right, or I read it. I learned it just reading books. Uh, or I just discovered it. Well, you know, because once you understand economic principles, you can figure stuff out on your own. You don't actually need to have somebody else explain it to you. You can figure it out, right? Once you have the concepts down, once you understand the basics, well, then everything kind of flows from there, right? Once you're, you know, in, in that direction or moving in that path, you can kind of steer it yourself. But it is good to read uh, some of the giants of Austrian economics and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, learn from them. Uh, but then, you know, you can build on that yourself. As far as your ability to teach it, I know that is difficult because in order to teach economics at a university level, you generally have to have not only a degree, but like a PhD in economics. So you're going to have to uh, go through the, the paces. But what you could do if you don't want to be affiliated with a university, you could just teach on your own. I know the guy uh, that I work with, uh, Paul, at uh, Shift Radio has this website, uh, Renegade University. I think teachers go on there and they people can just sign up for classes. I mean, you could teach economics and have people pay for your classes and do it online and not even be affiliated uh, with a university. And you can help people understand, uh, understand economics. Uh, but if you want to do it in a traditional uh, academic setting, then yeah, you got to go uh, to college uh, and, you know, you got to, you, you know, you're going to have to have study. I mean, I, I learned a little bit. I mean, I, if I look back at the econ courses I took at Cal Berkeley, I mean, the only course that really uh, made any sense was microeconomics, right? When you study micro as opposed to macro, which is all a bunch of Keynesian nonsense, when you just learn about supply and demand and how the curves are formed and you even actually apply some of the algebra, I mean, uh, uh, calculus rather, because you actually, it's like the only time I really used any calculus was in trying to uh, calculate uh, supply and demand curves, right? And trying to, you know, figure out, uh, you know, marginal pricing. I remember it was, I I thought it was, it was actually kind of fun for me to actually find a practical application to math other than just addition and percentages and stuff like that. We were actually able to construct uh, marginal curves uh, using a derivative, and I don't even remember today because it's been so long since I had to differentiate anything. But I do remember that it was interesting applying calculus to economics in a way that actually made sense. So microeconomics, I think, has some value, and there you're you're, you're learning economics from a company level, uh, you know, not from the whole country, but just specifically to individuals and individual businesses and individual markets. And so you can certainly learn stuff from a micro course. It's when they start going into the fantasy realm of macroeconomics that they really go from like learning astronomy to to astrology. Um, 
Next question, Peter, do you see a digital dollar happening and what would that mean for gold? Look, the dollar to a large degree is digital right now. I mean, how many paper dollars do we actually use? The key is whether the dollar is paper or digital, it one day will be backed by gold. I mean, that's what's going to happen. I mean, all of the fiat currencies in whatever form they end up being, and I think digital currency makes sense, right? We don't need paper currency we can represent paper currency digitally so long as the real money is backing it up. See, that's the problem with Bitcoin or any of these other uh, fiat cryptocurrencies is there's nothing backing them up. There is no real money behind the, the, the currency. But if we end up having digital currencies that are backed by real money, gold, then fine. I think a digital dollar would work better than a paper dollar so long as it's backed by gold. If it's not backed by gold, it's just as flawed. It may be easier and more convenient than a paper dollar, but ultimately it's not going to be a store of value, so it's not going to be a good form of money. If it's tied to something like gold, then it will be a long-term store of value, and then it will provide the discipline that you need on government. That is the, the beauty of a gold standard, is that governments need to live within their means. They can't make false promises. Gold keeps governments honest. I mean, the best essay on that was the one that Alan Greenspan penned, Gold and Economic Freedom, which is part of Ayn Rand's uh, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which is another great book uh, that you can read. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, next up is Aaron Goldstein. Hey, Peter, I'm from the UK, Canada, and Australia. In the next five to 10 years, wait, oh no, Peter, out of the UK, Canada, and Australia, in the next five to 10 years, if you had to guess which one of these countries will have the best overall economy and the highest standard of living, um, UK, Canada, or Australia, I would go with Australia. That'd be my bet because I think they have a lot of resources down there in Australia and they have big ties to Asia. They have big ties to China. And I think China is going to rise to a much greater degree than is generally perceived. Uh, so I think Australia is in a relative uh, good position uh, to benefit from that growth as well as from its own growth, uh, particularly when it comes to resources, uh, which Australia has in abundance. Uh, next up, Ryan Peterson. While the velocity of money remains low, some claim that the DXY will rise in the short to medium term since the base money supply is less than demand for US dollars in the US. Uh, why do you think this is wrong? Look, I've been talking on this podcast for a long time why I don't think the dollar is going to rise. In fact, if the dollar was going to rise, it would have already done so. I mean, the dollar index is no higher really than it was at its peak at the end of 2015. The dollar index has been going sideways for five years. Now, against some currencies, the dollar has gone up, right? Against a lot of the emerging market currencies, right? If you look at a trade-weighted index, 
The dollar is higher now than it was, but against its major rivals like the euro, like the yen, um, like the Swiss franc, um, the dollar is no higher than it was five years ago. So I think what the dollar is doing, despite all of this bullishness about a dollar shortage and deleveraging and the milkshake theory and all this stuff, the dollar is not going up. And when something's not going up, the next thing is that it goes down. And the dollar has been in a long-term decline. It's been in a bear market since 1971 against its major rivals. And it's been in a massive bear market in terms of gold. And that bear market is continuing. And I think gold is leading the way. So for all the reasons that I've been discussing on this podcast and that I will continue to discuss, I disagree uh, with that forecast. And I think the people who are betting on the dollar, like Goldman Sachs, are wrong. And I think people who are following the advice to bet on the dollar are going to lose a lot of money. I think my advice to bet against the dollar, to own gold, to own silver, and to own foreign assets is going to prevail. And I think the people who are listening to me are going to be far better off than people who are listening to the, the crowd that is bullish on the dollar and thinks everything is great, like uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, next question from the UK. Is the biggest risk for gold bugs when gold values start rocketing to the moon? Oh, tax or confiscation. So what's the bigger risk for the gold owners? Is it that your profits are taxed away or that your gold is confiscated? Look, that is always a risk, and it's a bigger risk depending on where you happen to live, right? If you live in a country that is in bad shape fiscally uh, and you know economically, uh, and you have a more corrupt government, there is a greater chance that they will try to confiscate your gold, whether they do it outright by taking it or whether they just confiscate your gains through taxation, which is the form, a form of confiscation. Look, that is a risk. I mean, I'm not going to diminish that risk. Now, obviously, if you have physical gold in your own possession, you diminish the risk because it's harder for the government to confiscate what they don't know you have and what they can't find. So if you're worried about confiscation, just don't have third parties in control of your gold because the third parties will turn the gold over, right? If the IRS or the government goes to a third party and says, give us all the gold that you're holding for other people, they're going to do it. Why should they stick their neck out for somebody else? Especially when the government gives them immunity, right? Because if the government comes to a bank and you happen to have uh, your money in a safety deposit box or your gold in a safety deposit box and a government agent walks up to that bank and says, hey, I want you to open up every safety deposit box and give me all the gold that's in there. And they do it. You can't sue them because they've got a perfect defense. We just we got orders from the government. They don't even care if there's a court order. There is no justice. If you do what the government tells you, the government's going to protect you. And why should you stick your nose out when it's not even your money? Right. And especially when the government has so much power because the government can say, hey, either you open up those uh, safety deposit boxes. Or we're going to shut you down. We're going to put you out of business. We're going to fine you. We're going to imprison you. Right. Because they know they just go to a bank, open up the boxes. I don't know if there's any gold in there. Open the box. We'll see what's in it. Right. Nancy Pelosi style. But if you happen to own gold on your own, the government doesn't know that you got it. Right. And even if you had it at one point, how do they know you still have it? Right. Uh, so if you're worried about confiscation of gold, then just take possession of your gold. 
right? And if the government's going to have a huge tax for selling your gold, then don't sell it or don't tell the government you sold it, barter it or something like that, right? Uh, but it is, a, it is a risk. It is a possibility. But, you know, go to shiftgold.com and, 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 and buy the gold and, and keep, it, keep it for yourself, right? I mean, you know, but what I do know is that if you have dollars, then the government doesn't have to find them, right? See, the government can only confiscate your gold if they find it. They have to take it from you. They don't need to find where you've hidden your dollars, right? If you have dollars underneath your mattress, the government doesn't need to come and take those dollars away from you. They don't have to find them underneath your mattress and grab them. They just print more and they render those dollars worthless. See, they don't need to find your money. When they print money, they wipe out the value of everybody's dollars, no matter where they're hidden. They don't have to go to a third party. They just take the value. They don't have to do anything. So the easiest value for the government to confiscate is the value of their own currency that they print, right? So that's the first thing. If you're worried about the government confiscating everything, anything, worry about that. Worry about the government confiscating the purchasing power of the fiat currency that they're printing and that you're dumb enough to save. So get rid of that. It's much, much harder for them to take your gold. And of course, you know, it's, they could take stocks. They could take bank accounts. They could take foreign currencies. The easiest thing for the governments to take is anything that's held in the custody of a third party. The hardest thing to take is the stuff that you have yourself, which would probably be your gold. Next question. Will your gold fund pay a dividend? Our gold fund does pay a dividend, but the dividend is not set in stone. It depends on what the fund earns. And the earnings are a combination of dividends that we collect on stocks. And there's not a lot of dividends these days in the gold mining sector. There's some dividends, right? But a lot of the dividend results from capital gains. Because what happens is we do buy and sell stocks uh, over the course of the year. And if we end up realizing a gain, we have to distribute those gains uh, as a dividend. But you don't find out the size of the dividend until the end of the year. Because then we kind of calculate what the gains are and we have an approximation of what the dividend is going to be. Obviously, if you own my gold fund in a non-taxable account, a tax-deferred account, then it doesn't make a difference uh, about the dividend. But obviously, if you own uh, the fund personally in a taxable account, then there are going to be some tax consequences surrounding those dividends. If you don't want the dividend, you can always sell uh, your shares uh, before they go ex-dividend and buy them back cheaper after, and then you avoid the dividend. But then you potentially generate a capital gains uh, when you sell the fund. You might have a loss. Uh, but if you sell the fund at a loss, you'd have to wait a full uh, 30 days to buy the same fund back if you want to use uh, that loss. Of course, you can throw the money into like the GDX or something like that during those 30 days. Uh, so you still have exposure to gold stocks and then get back into my fund. There are different ways that you can figure out how to manage your own tax situation when it comes to my gold fund. But the key is uh, to buy the fund. Uh, you know, I, I, somebody had sent me an email. I forget who it was. They were saying, hey, why should I buy your gold fund? Look, you're underperforming uh, the GDX, which was true uh, year to date. Uh, but, you know, we've outperformed it nicely uh, this week, actually. Uh, but again, even a week year to date, Look at how we've done since inception. That is the key. Uh, I think over the long run, I expect my fund to kill uh, the GDX. I think the stocks that Adrian 
day is picking uh, are going to outperform that index handsomely over a longer period of time. And so the purpose of investing in my fund is not to have the best returns over any short random time period. It's to have the best returns over the course of this entire gold bull market, which is going to last a long time. And if you think that somebody who really knows the industry, who, who knows the management teams and the project and who's been doing it for 30 or 40 years, if you think a guy like that can figure out which are the best stocks to buy and which stocks should be avoided rather than just buying everything because you don't know what you're doing, right? If you think over, in the long run, brains are going to win out over luck, you know, then buy my gold fund, right? I'm convinced uh, that it's going to be more than worth the extra cost. I mean, the index funds aren't free. You still pay a small fee. Yes, it's a lot less than what you're going to pay me because, hey, I got to hire Adrian. He's not going to do all this work for nothing. Uh, but I think we're getting a lot of value for our money. Uh, and so I think if you, you, know, you want to make the, the most out of this bull market, then hire the best guy uh, to manage your portfolio and pick the stocks for you and, the, and the, you know, know when to sell and know when to buy something else or know when to take advantage. I mean, we're not just sitting on the money, we're, we're managing it. Uh, anyway, uh, so EPGFX is the symbol. Also EPIGX, I think, is another symbol. There, there's different symbols for the fund, but it's the same fund. Just different um, categories, different classes, share classes. Um, next question. And you can buy the funds directly, by the way, if you want to do a small amount. The minimum is only 2500 bucks at europacificfunds.com. Uh, make sure you read the perspectives. Understand there is risks. Obviously, if you can make a lot of money, that means you're risking losing money in the process, right? You lose if I'm wrong. I think you make money if I'm right. And don't forget, we got five funds. Don't overlook the value fund, the dividend payers fund, the emerging market fund, or even the bond fund. I mean, I think they're all uh, good funds to own. They should all be part of a portfolio if the goal is to get out of the dollar. If you want to have a portfolio that will provide a hedge against a weak U.S. dollar, against stagflation, against weak U.S. markets, uh, then I think all of my funds would have a place in a diversified international portfolio. And I think people should have much more of their portfolio outside the U.S. right now than they do inside for many, many different reasons. Um, next stock. Um, I can only get gold stocks. I can only get gold stocks. Shouldn't wait for crash before buying as there will be a big drop in the metals as well. Okay, I think this guy is saying, should I just wait? for a big crash. Look, we just had that, right? We just had a big crash in March, right? The initial response to the collapse in the markets, to the Fed slashing interest rates to zero and going back to QE was paradoxically gold stocks crashed. And especially like the smaller stocks, right? The ones, the GDXJ, uh, it, it was the gold stocks went down more than the non-gold stocks. And at the time I was saying, this is a gift from the trading gods, just buy up. These are the stocks that should be going up. And sure enough, a lot of these stocks doubled and tripled. Yes, the whole market went up, but the gold stocks went up much more. They went down more, but then they went up more. And now they're higher than where they started to decline. That's not the case uh, for most of the, you know, the regular stocks. There are a few exceptions, you know, some of these COVID plays that, you know, really, they really rallied. Um, but now, do you want to gamble that that's going to happen again? I mean, it could, right? You could take profits on your gold stocks now, certainly if you bought them on that dip, and you could sit back and hope that the next time there's a market crash, 
the gold stocks crash too. Except it might not happen again. It might and it might not. I mean, yes, you can keep some dry powder in case we get lucky again and a bunch of idiots decide to sell the very stocks they should be buying or they're forced to sell them because they're on margin. Personally, I think most of the margin players have been flushed out. I think the people who had stops in the market, who bought gold stocks and put sell stops in there, I think they got stopped out. So I don't know that we're going to get another big drop. That might be the only one. I wouldn't want to chance it. I wouldn't want to sell all my gold stocks now on the hope that I'll get to buy them back cheaper. I mean, maybe I'd sell some if you if you bought some way down there and now you're overweighted and you want to lighten up a little bit but your core position I mean I would want to build on it I'm more bullish than ever on gold stocks Uh, so if we get lucky and there's another big decline great if you have the cash buy more but I wouldn't sell because it might happen and I would not buy because I might be able to buy cheaper in the future because I might not be able to buy cheaper in the future the prices might just go up We may never see a lower price than the one we see right now. Uh, And so I think the risk is so bad for the dollar. I think the risk of not being invested in mining stocks is greater than the risk of being invested in mining stocks. So I would rather err on owning and I'm willing to ride out any any short-term decline just like I wrote out the decline that we just had, which is now meaningless, right? I mean, if you did not sell into that abyss, you lost nothing. Your gold stocks are worth more today than they were in February before the big drop. So did the big drop matter to you? Not if you didn't sell. Yes, if you got spluffed out of the market, if you panicked and you sold, yes, then it meant a lot. It meant everything, right? You, you, you got bluffed out of a winning hand. But if you held steady, then you're fine. And if you took advantage of other people's misfortune or mistakes, you actually benefited from that big drop because now you have a bigger allocation to gold stocks at a, at a better price. Next question. I bought your gold fund and it's risen well since, but now I'm nervous to buy more because I don't want to ruin my average price. Look, I, I, I don't know how much it's up since you bought it. I mean, maybe you bought it right near the lows. Uh, but look, sometimes you got to average up. I mean, I think if you want to have a bigger position and you were too scared to buy more when it was cheaper, I don't think you should make the mistake of thinking that now it's too expensive to buy because don't look at my gold fund in relation to how cheap it was a month ago. Look at it in relation to how much more expensive it could be a year from now, five years from now. I still think we have a long way to go in this bull market. I still think we're much closer to the bottom than we are to the top. And I think the prices that you're paying today are going to look very cheap relative to where they're going to be in the future. So I don't think that you need to be nervous. I think we need to see a much bigger rise before I would be a little worried about a more meaningful pullback based on an extreme in sentiment. I mean, when you get a big investment bank like Goldman Sachs doing this highly publicized call to investors where it basically says, don't buy gold, Don't buy gold stocks. There's nothing to worry about. There's no inflation. I'm not worried that the gold stocks are too high. Wait until Goldman Sachs and everybody else, in fact, probably not even the first uh, big bank, wait till maybe the sixth or the seventh comes out and says, yes, we think you should buy gold stocks too, right? Wait till everybody jumps on this bandwagon before we start to think, okay, now we might get a more significant pullback. I shouldn't buy anymore or maybe I should lighten up 
Uh, and believe me, I mean, at some point I am going to advise that a lot of my clients who have been loading up on my gold fund, and that's where most of the flows have been going recently is gold. At some point, I'm going to come onto this uh, podcast and recommend that people shift money out of my gold fund into one of my other funds uh, because gold you know, has come too far too fast and it's time to take some of the uh, cream off the top and, and create a more balanced portfolio. So keep listening to this podcast and I'll let you know when I think it's time to do that. But right now, I don't think it's time. I still think that we want to ride this horse because it's barely, uh, barely out of the gate. But again, make sure that, you know, this is risk money. Right? This, you don't put money into gold stocks that you're not willing to lose if it turns out that, that I'm wrong on my outlook. All right. Now, Peter, you're the best. Tell us again about your exchange with Greenspan in 1987. <laughs> what would you say if you met with him today? Uh, you know, I never actually met Alan Greenspan. I wanted to meet him one time that he was in at the, at the New Orleans conference, but I wasn't able to meet him. I forget. Maybe I wasn't there that day. I forget why I wasn't able to meet him in the green room or anything. Uh, like I did run into Ben Bernanke, you know, at the green room of I think it was uh um, what's his name? Uh, Scaramucci uh, conference, uh, Salt conference in Vegas. That's where I met uh, um, Bernanke. I always pronounce that guy's name wrong. Somebody was, you know, kind of call me out. Yeah, it's not. It's Bernanke, right? Not Bernanke. Ben Bernanke. Something like. I don't know why. I, I don't know why I always get that guy's name wrong. But a lot of people got it wrong. What happened was I think I was mispronouncing it from the beginning. And once I start mispronouncing somebody's name, it's hard for me to then pronounce it right because it's kind of like like habit uh, of how, of how uh, you're saying. I remember that, you know, that cartoon where they were just calling him the Bernack, right? Remember that, 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 that YouTube video that got uh, on quantitative easing that got all those, uh, all those views, but they just called him the Bernack. And so a lot of people started referring him by that name. Um, but um, yeah, Alan Greenspan, I, you know, I mentioned him earlier in the podcast because he wrote the article on gold and economic freedom. And I read some of Greenspan's writings uh, at a young age, I read them, you know, as a college, high school kid, college kid. So I actually liked Greenspan, right? And so when he became Fed chairman, I was excited about that in 1987, right? And, and then when he began to do things that disappointed me after the 87 stock market crash, when he began to do the very things that he was criticizing the Federal Reserve for doing in the 1920s, I could see that he was doing precisely what he said was a mistake when we did it in the late 1920s. And so I called him out on it. And you can look at the two emails. I finally, or not emails, letters, I found them. You know, they were missing for years. And I, I was looking for these things. I knew I had them somewhere because I would never throw them away. And for years, I couldn't find them. And then I just found them. I don't even remember where I found them, but I found them. Uh, and they were still in the original envelopes that they were mailed to me from the Federal Reserve back in 1987. And of course, I don't have copies of the letters that I mailed Greenspan, right? I didn't keep a copy. I should have. Uh, so I only have the copies of the ones he sent me. And I believe I sent him a follow-up letter after I got the second letter, but I never got a third letter from him. I got two letters. Uh, but he wrote them, he signed them. And um, I put both of those letters up on the Shift Radio website. So you could check them out. Just, you know, shiftradio.com. You, you, you just play around on the site, you'll find them. 
And I think they're very, very interesting because it really lays out exactly what Greenspan did for his entire tenure. And he ended up, you know, as the longest serving Fed chairman in history. And my exchange with him happened right away during his first year. And he pretty much laid out the mistakes that he was going to make. But he 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 knew that he was playing with fire, but he just thought that he can control it. Right. <clears throat> that, you know, that somehow he could do what prior Fed chairmen couldn't do, right? All of a sudden, he thought that he was going to be able to succeed where others had failed. You know, it's like Lord Acton, you know, power corrupts. And so once he got the absolute power of being Fed chairman, he became corrupted absolutely in the notion that he was now like a superhero. And that so now he could be trusted with this power that lesser men uh, were not able to handle. And we now have found out that, of course, he was mistaken because he gave us one bubble after another, uh, which resulted ultimately in the uh, financial crisis of 2008. And the playbook that he wrote that caused the housing bubble and the dot-com bubble and that gave us the financial crisis and that allowed this massive increase in government debt and, and, and all sorts of debt, that playbook right, was then adopted and expanded by Bernanke and by by Yellen and now by Powell. So he wrote the rules that all these guys are following, except the difference is I think Greenspan knew in his heart that, it, that it, this was a wild gamble, that it was probably wrong. I think he is the only one of these guys that actually knows how this movie is going to end, right? <laughs> the other people are clueless. They don't know, right? Greenspan knows, right? This is going to end in disaster. You, have, you listen to anything this guy has said since he left uh, being Fed chairman. And you read between the lines. And sometimes you don't even have to read between the lines. Just read the lines. And it's clear that he knows a disaster is coming. He just doesn't want to accept responsibility. Right? That's why you know, I, I, I call this guy a traitor. I, don't have, I have less respect now for Greenspan than any of these people who have followed him because he knows better. Right? Yet he did it anyway. Anyway, but uh, next question. Um... Have you um, have you seen or read the prince prince the princes of yen? Basically, showing how central banks are not inept, but rather are purposely creating bubbles and crashes to acquire power. I have not read uh, the book, if assuming that we actually have the title correct correctly. Um, you know, there is a a view that the central banks are doing this on purpose, that they're purposely creating bubbles that they know will pop, uh, that they're creating fires that they can put out uh, in an effort to uh, grow government, make government bigger. So they have a devious purpose uh, behind uh, their seeming madness. Look, I, I just think it's everybody acting in their own political self-interest. Everybody is incentivized to kick the can down the road. Right. Nobody wants to do the right thing because doing the right thing means that you're not going to get reelected. You're not going to get reappointed. So I don't think that people are destroying the country on purpose. I just think it is the natural consequence of the political decisions that are being made. Right. We're, we're making decisions that serve the political interest of the people who are making them, but that undermine the interest of the country. Now, I also believe that politicians take advantage of any crisis that comes their way. Not that they're smart enough to plan them or predict them, but they're certainly devious enough and greedy enough to take advantage of them. 
So every time there is a crisis that happens to be caused, whether they realize it or not, by their own policy mistakes, they seize on that crisis to make government bigger because that's what they want to do anyway, right? The people that are in government believe in government. They, they think that the free market doesn't work and they think that we need government and we need them uh, to correct the, the flaws in the market and to, and to create a fairer outcome than the one that would happen naturally uh, if we had free market forces uh, you know, determining things. So yeah, they certainly use the crisis, but I don't think they even are smart enough to plan them, to do it on purpose, but they take advantage of the crises that they create by accident. Um, next question. Um, the Fed dropped their reserve requirement for banks to zero. Since we are under a fractional reserve bank, does that mean that banks can loan an infinite amount of money? Basically. But in theory, they still need to get paid back. So there's supposed to be some credit worthiness behind their loans, right? So you can say, is there an unlimited supply of credit-worthy borrowers? Not really. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, there is a tremendous amount of money, but a lot of that money ends up being loaned back to governments because the banks end up buying treasuries or other government-guaranteed loans <coughs> with that money, right? Because after all, the rates that they're earning are extremely low, so they can't really afford to take much risk on such low rates. And a lot of times too, if they, if they make loans that are not to government entities, they get a big haircut uh, on the value of those loans and it impacts their balance sheet. So the government really rigs this system uh, so that the banks basically take whatever money they get from the Fed and they turn around really and they loan it uh, to the government or they, they loan it for, for mortgages or you know student loans, or at least they were doing student loans before the government uh, basically cornered that market. Uh, but the, the, the Federal Reserve and the government are trying to direct uh, the bank to lend the money uh, where they want it to go, you know, to where it's politically favored. But what we really want is a banking system that is based on savings, that is based on people not consuming, deferring consumption, freeing up resources for the future and saving their money. And now the banks take the actual savings that represents foregone consumption and they actually take those savings and they loan it to private entrepreneurs who invest those savings in plant and equipment, uh, in training workers, and making the economy more productive so that we have an increased supply of goods and services so that the people who are saving their money can then spend their savings in the future and enjoy a higher standard of living because their savings were used to increase the supply of goods and services that will be available to consume in the future because their savings were invested in productive capacity, in capital, and in, 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 in worker productivity and training in ways that we now are more productive. And so there are more goods produced uh, to be bought uh, with the savings and the interest that they earned on those savings. But it's a long way to go from where we are now, this phony bubble economy uh, based on uh, printing money, debt, and consumption to a genuine free market economy based on underconsumption, savings, and production. Uh, but then, again, you want to understand that. That's where the Austrian uh, perspective comes in because uh, the Austrian school has a lot to say about that. Uh, last question is from Dennis Goddard. Uh, hello from New Hampshire, home of the Free State Project, Live Free or Die. 
hope to see you here again after we beat COVID. Oh, okay. So guys just saying hello, not really a question. Yeah, I have no plans on being up in New Hampshire this summer. I am going up to Connecticut uh, next weekend. Uh, So I have one more week down in Puerto Rico, and then I'm going to be spending the summer uh, in Connecticut. Not exactly sure when I'm going to come back down to Puerto Rico. It's kind of up in the air. A lot of it depends on the schools, which is where my younger children are enrolled. Anyway, that's it for today. Have a great weekend. We got a brand new month. Uh, The month of June uh, starts on Monday, and I'm sure we'll have a very interesting uh, month, to say the least. And I will be reporting on all the action live uh, from my podcast on The Peter Schiff Show. Thank you.